You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at a house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. Well, this uh, section of Acts, uh, beginning at chapter 8, speaks of the conversion of the Samaritan people. Uh, the people who were at odds with the Jews in Jerusalem. And the second part of chapter 8 speaks of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, this man who had traveled from a great distance to come to the temple. Reading from the prophet Isaiah is then in this moment when Philip explains to him, becomes a convert and a Christian. And in chapters 9 through 10, we'll see Peter going to Cornelius the Gentile, Uh, who himself will will become a Christian. And in between the two Gentiles, the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, we have the conversion of this Pharisee, and really the the Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, This moment in Acts is is actually so important that it will be recounted two additional times. Here we have Luke's account, our text today, But then Paul will recount this later to a mob in the temple complex in Jerusalem in chapter 22. And he'll recount it again to King Agrippa in chapter 26. 
It's actually sandwiched between these two uh, Gentiles who become believers. We, we have, again, this conversion of Paul. Because I think for us, it's, it's actually easier for us to see these Gentiles become converted to the faith rather than it is to see this Pharisee. And again, not just any Pharisee. This Pharisee was one who was so stubborn, so hard-hearted towards the gospel and his fellow man. This is the man who would not only persecute the church and approve the murder of Stephen, but would actually get letters from the high priest in order to travel all the way up these many miles to Damascus in order to further arrest these fleeing Christians, men and women ripping apart these families in order to take them back to Jerusalem. He was zealous. He was zealous. He was one of Jesus' biggest earthly adversaries. And suddenly, in one moment in his life, he is dramatically converted when he is confronted with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what we'll really be looking at is the way Luke lays this out. Paul, uh, who is called Saul here, he meets with the Lord Jesus in the first nine verses. And then he meets with a fellow Christian, Ananias, in verses 10 through 19. And so, as I said, Paul is journeying to Damascus in verses 1 through 2. He is on his way to arrest believers and cart them back off to jail. He likely has, a, has an entourage of, of temple police, of these men who were instrumental in helping to arrest the apostles earlier. And so he, he's traveling on that way in verse 1 to stamp out, from his perspective, this heretical sect, this heretical sect. He's, fleeing, he's, he's fl pursuing these fleeing Christians to really prevent them from perverting the synagogues in Damascus. I mean, this is true zealousness. And he gets permission from the high priest who is more than sympathetic to, to Saul's plan. And again, you must remember Saul's mindset. From his perspective, he's a Jewish monotheist. There is one God, and to claim Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Lord sitting at his right hand, is to make Jesus equal with God. And this is such a high form of blasphemy to Paul, that he will go to, to uh, these great ends in order to see this stamped out. Well, in verses 3 through 9, though, Again, it's, it's wonderful to see. Saul has this plan to attack and to persecute and to hurt the church of Christ. And then suddenly, his whole plan is just torn to shreds in one fateful instance. Saul meets Jesus, and he's radically changed in an instant. It's a, a beautiful passage set almost at the turning point of the book of Acts. Because Acts chapter 13 through the end will be concerned actually with Saul, who will be the apostle Paul to the Gentiles. But note the way in which this event happens. As Saul is approaching Damascus, this light from heaven shines around him and a voice speaks from it. Luke tells us this light is, is coming, is emanating from heaven. And somebody is speaking to Paul there. You can imagine his terror as this light is calling him out directly. 
And remember, Paul, again, is, is a good Jew who knows his Old Testament. And so when this light is shining and this voice is speaking, there are only two options for him. Either God is speaking to him now or it's some messenger of God. But Luke has already shown us earlier that when this light and voice come from heaven, this is God speaking. And the, the twist that happens here is it's not God the Father speaking. Rather, it's the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his son, speaking to Paul. The very one who Paul doesn't believe in. The one Paul presumably believes is actually still dead and buried somewhere. And not only is he speaking to Paul, but he's pointedly telling Paul that what he's doing is wrong. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's interesting to see that. Jesus could have said, Saul, why are you persecuting my church, my people? But that's actually not what Jesus says here. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Think of the ways in which Jesus is speaking of the way in which his people are united to him, that when they are attacked, when they are persecuted, when they are killed, it's as if they're being done directly to him. He so cares for his people that an offense, an attack upon them is a, an attack upon him. And then realize as this starts to settle in for Paul, that everything that he has been devoting his life to over the past several months, zealously pursuing this, suddenly he is realizing in that moment how terribly wrong he has been. He has not just been attacking those made in the image of God, but he has been attacking God himself. And so Saul responds, unsure of who is speaking, who are you, Lord? And again, from Paul's perspective, it is either God or a messenger. And soon it will be that Paul understands this. That though the one speaking is none other than Jesus. That this is no mere messenger, but the voice of the Almighty. And then what we see in the beginning of Paul's life here as a believer Jesus commands him to rise and go to this village. In a sense, you will receive further instruction when you get there. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, but he was led and brought into Damascus. That this moment here, Saul obeys. He obeys the voice from heaven. And he begins to show these signs of repentance. In verse 9, he is, he is fasting. He's abstaining from food and from drink. He is spending his time in prayer. He is earnestly seeking the Lord and repenting of his sins. The, the magnitude and the gravity of what he had devoted his life to must be settling in on him. It's, it's easy when we read later Paul saying, I am the chief of sinners. We kind of go, oh, well, Paul, you're, you're a pretty good guy. We forget the fact. That this man was responsible for jailing and for murdering and for killing the Lord's people. And so we see in Paul this uh, change that happens in his worldview. This, this complete paradigm shift that happens for Paul. The way in which he is radically changed in a moment. 
Right? Paul, who is, is so devoted to this Jewish monotheism, it has to now expand to include Christian Trinitarianism. Secondly, we see Paul, the, 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 the Pharisee, who is basing his salvation on the amount of works that he can do to earn God's favor, trying to please God through obedience. This works righteousness to earn his salvation. Suddenly in this moment, it, it gives way to just unmerited grace. If humanly speaking, there was anybody who didn't deserve to be saved, we would say it was Saul, the persecutor. If there's anyone who shouldn't have been saved from, from an earthly perspective, it is certainly Saul. And yet Jesus shows him grace and mercy. The chief of sinners sees the depth of his sin and finds everlasting life. And Saul's story continues. He meets now a fellow Christian, Ananias, in verses 10 through 19. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And there's a couple of things to note about Ananias. This is really all that we know about him. It is likely that he's a church leader in Damascus. But really, he's just an ordinary Christian. He's neither a deacon nor an apostle. And he gets this vision from Jesus and he responds to him. Jesus, Lord. Jesus, Lord. And we see the way in which Jesus here, ruling over his church, he, he has every right to move Ananias where he sees fit. He's like a general telling a foot soldier what to do. The Lord Jesus reigning in heaven, sitting at the right hand of his father, now directing all of these events and ordering Ananias. And of course, in, in verses 13 through 14, Ananias as you can all imagine, is skeptical about this. Saul is known for his zealousness. He's known for his attacks upon the followers of Jesus. Ananias seems to be here weighing the difference, right, between being bold for Christ and being stupid. Not many of us would want to just needlessly go knocking on the door of the Pharisee who has papers from the high priest to cart us off to jail. It's also quite possible that Ananias was one of those men that Paul knew of in order to take back to Jerusalem. And then again, it actually reminds me much of Jonah. The Lord commands Jonah to go to his very enemies. And Ananias is not terribly keen. Ananias' assumption, though, right, is that his enemy is still his enemy. Jesus, though... It's almost comical. I, I, this word I learned from the Reverend Larry Wilkes, it's voluntold instead of volunteered. Volunteered, you're asked to do something. Voluntold, you're just assumed that you're going to have to go and do it. Note the way in which Jesus, he not only commands Ananias to go, but he's already given a vision to the apostle Paul, to Saul. This, this vision, Jesus tells him, he says, you're going to the apostle Paul. By the way, I've already told him you're coming. It strikes me as almost comical. But Jesus has already been showing this vision to Paul who is praying fervently to the Lord. He shows him that this man will come in order to help restore his sight. And unlike, unlike Jonah, Ananias goes. Jesus responds to Ananias' concerns though. First by telling him to go. 
Again, it's like God the Father in the Old Testament commanding prophets to go and to do what he commands them to do. Here, Jesus is commanding his disciples to go forth. But what's interesting is to see the way in which Jesus doesn't rebuke Ananias for his questions. In many ways, again, we're sympathetic. These are good questions. Lord Jesus, he is the enemy of enemies. And Jesus says, look, he explains his plan. Saul will be an instrument in my hand. Again, like prophets of old in the Father's hand. So Jesus is continuing to direct and to guide his church. And Nehemiah pens this strange statement here. That, look, he will also suffer for my name. He will suffer for my name. He will be an instrument, but he will also suffer for my name. This isn't Jesus being vindictive over what Saul has done in the past to his church. Rather, it is showing forth the fact that Saul really truly was converted. That he really truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because after this, Saul's life is not one of ease. Immediately in this uh, next chapter, he has to flee from people trying to kill him. His life will be spent uh, basically living off the generosity of others. He'll be traveling around. He will never really have a home. He'll be shipwrecked. He'll be beaten. He'll be lowered out of cities. He'll be arrested. He'll actually even be bitten by a poisonous snake at one point. The man's life is going to be one of suffering for the Lord. And the reason that he does this, we see this in his letters, that Paul, the persecutor, becomes the persecuted because he knows the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Only this, this supernatural transformation, only giving Saul something greater than his earthly zeal could so transform and change him that he would give up all, even eventually his own life, where he will be killed by the Roman government. And so we come near the end of this text with Ananias and Saul in verses 17 through 19. Again, unlike Jonah, Ananias immediately departs on his mission. And it's been the beauty that we've seen throughout the book of Acts that in chapter 5, the apostles who are freed from prison go right back to preaching and proclaiming the gospel. That when we see Stephen enter the pages of Acts, his, his first thing is to preach this extended sermon to Gentile or to, to Jewish uh, Hellenistic Jews. And ultimately, he's martyred for that. And here, Ananias goes forth. Right, the, the focus is on Saul and his conversion, but we really shouldn't forget just this ordinary faithfulness to a very difficult task. I mean, from Ananias' simple act of obedience, it's the, the catalyst that starts the Apostle Paul's ministry. Can you imagine what Ananias would then see and know for the rest of his life as he hears of the exploits of Paul going around the known world? as churches are, are planted, as, as the gospel is going forth. It all starts because one man was simple, obedient, simply obedient. Really, the, the, the ordinary faithfulness in Jesus Christ yields extraordinary results. So we're all called to do this ordinary, simple faithfulness. 
And note the way in which Ananias addresses Saul. He calls him brother. Saul, my brother. If Jesus tells Ananias that Saul is a believer, then for Ananias, he is. And so he approaches Saul in order to pray for him, in order to help him to receive his sight and the Holy Spirit and to help in his baptism. And at the end of that, Saul stops his fast. The one who sought to destroy Christianity is now about to become one of its biggest champions. I mean, quite simply, this is grace at work. Paul will will go from Saul, the one who persecutes the church, to Paul, the one who will carry Jesus' name to the furthest ends of the earth. Really, that's the the need of this hour. We may not have such a supernatural calling. I don't think any of us can, can claim that while walking somewhere, this bright light called us out of darkness to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Though if you have become a Christian, it is a supernatural event. But like Paul, we all have this supernatural commission to go forth. The risen Lord Jesus Christ at the end of Matthew speaks about the way in which all of his disciples are to go to all the ends of the earth, making his name known. And as we've been seeing through the book of Acts, just as when the Samaritans converted, they needed Jews to come from Jerusalem in order to heal these wounds that have existed between these two groups of people. So Paul is baptized and brought into the faith by this ordinary Christian. I think to help Saul here to understand that he is now part of this group he previously tried to persecute. So Paul here is baptized by this ordinary, regular Christian in order to constantly remind him of who now he belongs to. He belongs to Jesus and to the church. So this text, it's full of so many wonderful truths. We see the way in which Christianity changes your worldview. It drastically shifted for Paul. What he thought was true had turned out to be nothing more than a lie. We see also this ordinary faithfulness. Right Again, we, we may not be in Saul's uh, position with Saul's direct commission, but we are certainly in Ananias's. We are certainly these ordinary Christians that do mundane things that reap eternal rewards. Third thing to, to note from this text is, is simply just the historical reliability of it. Right? Saul's a real person. Luke records this three times. And we actually have the letters written by Paul himself to the various churches. We have his own testimony of his previous life and now his life in Christ. And what is, the, what is it that could have changed someone so radically? I mean, to put it in today's context, you can uh, imagine uh, an Islamic terrorist so bent on destroying Christianity that in a, a moment of time, he, he goes from uh, changing his entire worldview and everything he thought was true now to confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, something that would get him killed in his own culture and context. This is what has happened to Paul. And what is it that has changed him? It was an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul actually will say this later in one of his letters. 
that either Jesus really existed, really died, and really rose from the dead, or he didn't. Those are the only two choices before us. And if Jesus didn't, then he, along with the apostles, along with the church, are just deluded fools, that he's wasted his life. There's really nowhere in between. You have to come down on one or the other of these truths. Right? Either it's true and it's the greatest hope that we have that there is reconciliation possible with God. Or it's not true. And then we're left with a world without hope. Right? There's no reason for existence. No basis for morality. It's just blind chance floating in an uncaring in personal universe that somehow created itself. The fourth thing to see in this text as we go through Acts is that Jesus still reigns. You know, we, we call this book the Acts of the Apostles, but it could also be truly stated as the Acts of the Apostles from the risen Lord Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. That Jesus still reigns. He's still building his church, and the gates of hell will never overtake it. I mean, think about it. 2,000 years, and the church is still going. Though it may be less in some places, it's stronger than others. And actually, even in some of the hardest places in the world, the church is growing. Why in the world would you be a Christian living in China? Why would you be a Christian living in Myanmar, or Afghanistan, or Iran? Or Iraq, why would you be a Christian there? Unless it's true. And yet in these places, we're seeing Christianity not only existing, but thriving. And so as we come to the end of this, Saul, he represents two types of people in this world. Right? We have his, his former life and his new life. Right? Saul here. Before his encounter with Jesus, he's this zealot trying to save himself. And he's running headlong into destruction. If Jesus had not really stepped in, put the brakes on Paul, and saved his life, Saul would have had this not just uncomfortable, but, but horrific encounter with God one day. Saul, who would have said, Lord, I've done everything in your service. And God would say, you have done nothing. You have been serving Satan and yourself instead of me. Depart from me, you wicked, wicked man. But the second, right, Paul, this converted sinner, instead of saving himself, he abandoned himself. He found grace in Jesus Christ and then lived a life dedicated to, serve, to serving the Lord. And one day he would ultimately just give his life and die. And for Paul, he said, it's better if I depart and go be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Stephen before him, he appeared before the Lord and Savior. And now he heard those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into glory. The question Paul, if he were standing here, is to, the question he would be asking is, which one are you? Where is your faith this morning? Where is your hope and your trust? And what will you hear when you stand before God? Amen. Let us pray.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K. For more, thank you.